You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. Today's teaching from The Greatest Story is entitled Away from Home. Good evening, friends. Welcome to week eight. So we only have two more weeks after tonight, and we are still not in the New Testament. You guys probably think I just forgot that part of the Bible. But seriously, though, have you ever looked at the edge of your Bible? Like, look how much bigger the Old Testament is than the New. It's crazy. And the American Christian probably spends like 90% of their time in just the New Testament. And I totally made up that statistic. I have no idea. But it sounds believable, right? Uh, I hope that our time together has given you a greater appreciation for and um, just a desire to know the Old Testament. And what I really mean by that is to know the God of the Old Testament. The New Testament takes on so much more depth when we reconnect it to the Old. This is all about Him. So last week we covered a ton of ground all the way from Mount Sinai right up until the exile. And I intentionally left you in a pretty desperate place. God's covenant faithfulness continues, but Israel continues to commit spiritual adultery by whoring after the pagan gods. They have broken covenant and proven that they are incapable of keeping it. And it's not just them, right? It's you. It's me. It's every human that has ever been born of Adam. How will God ever establish his kingdom among us? So to begin tonight, I'd like to point back to Exodus 34, 6, and 7. This is the long name of God as he himself declared to Moses. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. We've been observing the immense patience of God, but now we're going to see that other facet of his character, his holy justice. Israel's unfaithfulness has earned them exile from the promised land. And before we unpack this concept, I want you to have a definition for exile. So it means the state or period of absence from one's home. Now this can be forced or voluntary. We usually think of this as forced, right? When exile is used as a verb, it means to banish or to drive out. But technically it can also be a voluntary state. Simply displacement from one's home for a variety of reasons. The exile is an actual event in Israel's history, but we see this concept elsewhere in Scripture. I asked you in your homework, can you think of any other ones? And maybe it helps now to see this definition. But the very first exile in Scripture is Adam and Eve being banished or exiled from the Garden of Eden. And then we have the scattering of the people at Babel, Abram leaving his home, Joseph being sold into slavery. I mean, that's just a couple from Genesis. But Israel's exile was, of course, involuntary. This was judgment for their sin, their breaking of God's conditional covenant. And we hear so much about God's unconditional love and grace that this doesn't hit our New Testament ears the way that it should. 
I mean, can you imagine being in a contract with God? He clearly communicated their role and responsibilities. You remember that wedding scene of Mount Sinai that we looked at last week? They say, I do, but generation after generation proves that they don't, they can't. And now they're reaping the consequences of their unfaithfulness. 2 Kings 17, 7 and 8 couldn't be more clear. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And I also mentioned last week, this certainly was not without warning. God sent prophet after prophet to call them to repentance. You read this passage in your homework this week, 2 Chronicles 36, 15 and 16. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people and there was no remedy. That last verse is, or that phrase is chilling. There was no remedy. This cancer of sin has proved terminal, and the time has come for God's justice. Did you ever think of the theoretical implications if God was not just? We love his love and his grace and his mercy, but do we love his justice? This aspect of God and of our Christian faith has some bad press in the culture today. In fact, there are entire sects of people who call themselves Christians but refuse to acknowledge that sin is even a thing or that hell exists. Allow me to point something out to you. Every single one of us has this inherent desire for justice. And those who don't have suppressed the truth of God and their consciences are debased. The problem is that our understanding of justice will always be limited because, hey, we're not God. Our sinful nature tends to excuse or justify, in some cases, and then on the converse, to be quick to condemn in others. The fact of the matter is, if you have a high sense of justice, you're probably quick to condemn others and quick to excuse yourself. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, if you're high mercy, you just want everybody to get along. Like, why can't we be forgiven? Let's live happily ever after, right? And regardless of where you're at on that continuum, we all want a happy ending. Because that's how God has wired us. He's wired us for that story. We want the wrongs to be made right. And ultimately, what is necessary for all of those wrongs to be made right is the justice of God. Sin demands a penalty. And what comfort to serve the one true God who is the standard of justice and the standard of righteousness. He's still the sovereign king of the universe. And for now, he's patiently waiting until the time is full. But when Christ returns, the justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. 
There's tremendous security in that for those of us who are in Christ. This is a stark difference of being on this side of the cross. Christ absorbed God's wrath on our behalf and upheld that covenant as our representative. The Israelites were in a conditional covenant with God. And they had to bear the penalty for their sin. Now there is a ton of history that surrounds the era of the Israel's exile. In fact, um, Corey Mitchell, one of our elders, developed a three-month class on the exile. And I took it, and I learned so much, and I'm so glad I don't have to teach it. <laughs> I told you, I'm not the history buff, but Corey is. And so that's what's beautiful about the body of Christ. Teamwork makes the dream work, okay? We're going to take the high view again, like we've been doing. So we're going to nail down some main points and, as always, look for the heart of God. So here are my cliff notes from the history. Remember, the nation of Israel was divided after Solomon into the northern kingdom of ten tribes. That's the blue on the map. They're called Israel. And the southern kingdom of two tribes, the orange area, is called Judah. When we speak of the exile, there's actually several waves of deportation. It's not just one big event, but some of those deportations are only like one or two lines in the text. And if you're not looking for them, you may just read right over them. But we can specifically mark the fall of their capital cities. Those are notorious mile markers on our timeline. So I had you read these passages in your homework. The fall of Samaria, which is the capital of the northern kingdom. That happens first, and that's in 2 Kings 17. And then the, uh, Judah lasts a little longer, but the fall of Jerusalem then in the southern kingdom, that occurs a little while later and is found in 2 Kings 25. And the account of the fall of Samaria, the northern kingdom, is pretty brief in the text. It just says something to the effect of the Assyrians laid siege to Samaria. They eventually captured it and they carried the people off from their homeland. And you're kind of like, wait, what? <laughs> That's all you get. It's written so matter of fact that you could almost miss it. But the fall of Jerusalem, on the other hand, comes with much more detail. And I believe that this is intentional because remember, we're watching the line of Judah, the line of David, that throne in Jerusalem for the Messianic king. And so in this account, we see a lot more imagery. Babylon is the enemy nation. They come against Jerusalem and hold the city under siege. The people are starving and desperate. I'll spare you the details. And eventually there's a breach in the wall and the men that try to escape are captured. The Babylonians take the king as a prisoner of war and they slaughter his family in front of his eyes. They break down the walls of the city and they plunder and burn the temple of God. I find the looting and the destruction of the temple the most sobering. This should jog our minds back to the tabernacle the sacredness of that place when God's people built his first dwelling place among man. And then the temple as that greater and more permanent fulfillment in their promised land. The glory cloud of the Lord's presence descending and just filling that place. And now that sacred place is not filled with the glory of the Lord. It's filled with pagans 
who are just profaning the holiness of God. They plunder the sacred treasures. They burn the temple of the Lord to the ground. The kingdom is literally in a pile of smoldering ruins. And this should feel really heavy for how much time we've spent in the history of Israel. Think of all that was lost. Their place, their identity as a people, and God's very presence. 2 Kings 24, 20 says, For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out of his presence. And that is the worst part of exile. Do you see how knowing the biblical narrative changes these stories? I hope that having the context, the grief just hits you a little differently, the way it's supposed to. It looks like God's intentions have been laid to rest in the rubble of Jerusalem. Where is this eternal kingdom that has been promised? Where's the snake crusher of Genesis 3.15? Has God's plan come completely unraveled because of human sin? I'd like to take a moment to read from Lamentations 1. This was written by the prophet Jeremiah after the fall of Jerusalem. Literally an entire book of lament over this beloved city. This is verses 1 through 12. How lonely sits the city that was once full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper, because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her, her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future, therefore her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you all who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow. 
which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. Just as the promised land of Eden was lost to sin, so was the promised land of Canaan. And just like that downward spiral in Genesis that took us to Babel, so we see this downward spiral of God's people in the promised land that's taking us to Babylon. And remember, that's that iconic city that is built on the very foundation of Babel, standing for everything that God hates. This is where autonomy leads us, friends. Sin flaunts its empty promises if you only take a bite of the fruit. But in the end, there is only pain and death. There is no life apart from God. And as we have observed time and time again, what seems like the end isn't with God. His purposes go forward despite human sin. So what is God's heart? God's heart is for reconciliation, for a gathering in of his people. You'll find this message all throughout the prophets. In your homework, you looked at the context of the infamous Jeremiah 29, 11 verse. Would you turn there with me? We're just going to reread this again. Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. There will be an ingathering of the remnant, but it's so much bigger than they could have known. God's plan for the long game. He is redeeming his people in eternal redemption so as to establish his eternal kingdom among man. The people of the northern kingdom never returned. They're called the lost tribes of Israel. But a remnant did return to Jerusalem as prophesied. And just as there were several waves of deportation, so there were several waves of return. The books of Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Zechariah cover some of this time period. There are two points I want you to see from this part of the story. First of all, God is not only sovereign over his people and what he's doing with them, but he is sovereign over all things. We see these pagan kings in great positions of power, and they're just right there in the hand of God. They're conquering the people and then releasing them to return all at the prompting of God. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water. In the hand of the Lord, he turns it wherever he will. 
And the second main point is that this return only proved to be a partial restoration. I've said this a couple times now. So they, they came back. There was rebuilding. There was reform. There was repentance. But they were still living under enemy rule. And God's presence did not return to that place. So they were left longing for a true and better fulfillment. And here we are today. Have we seen this fulfillment yet? It's kind of a trick question. <laughs> the answer is not entirely. Jesus coming in the flesh initiated the restoration of God's kingdom on earth. But it won't be until he returns that his kingdom comes in fullness. Our current reality is actually a lot more like exile. This is not our true home. Philippians 3.20 says our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because of what Christ accomplished that we have the assurance of a home in his kingdom. Have you ever considered that the son of God went into exile? His was voluntary. But he left his heavenly home to come and to rescue you and me, the exiled, so that we could be brought back home. And though our hearts long for the true and better rest of the kingdom come, each of us still has a number of days marked out here on planet Earth. And so how are we to live in this place of exile? Scripture is fairly quiet on what life was like for the exiled Israelites. But we do have Jeremiah's instructions to the exiles in chapter 9. So if you look back there in chapter 29, in uh, verses 5 and 6, look at the language here. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and then eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. And then take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Do you see that passage of time? It's like he's saying, settle in. This is going to be your home for a while. But you're still my people. So bear my image. Have dominion. Be fruitful and multiply. And he concludes these exhortations in verse 7 saying, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Now we do have two great spotlights on life in exile in the stories of Daniel, who was in Babylon, and Esther, who was in Persia. I'm not going to retell their stories. I assume you're at least somewhat familiar with them. But their context was exile. They suddenly found themselves a minority in, an, in a foreign culture and a very pagan culture in their case. And it would seem that there are two options for how to conduct oneself. You either conform or you revolt. I mean, what other choice is there? But Jeremiah's instructions to seek the welfare of the city while still maintaining allegiance to God seem to insinuate that there's a third option. It's like there's this combination of submission and defiance. 
And that's what we see in the stories of Daniel and Esther. We could point to certain times when they participated in culture, submitted to the authorities. They assimilated in a sense. They worked. They served. They sought the welfare of the city. But then we could also point to certain times when they stood up in defiance. Daniel did when ordered to deny the Lord. And Esther stepped in to intercede and stop the genocide of her people. Now we could probably think of a whole list of adjectives to describe their lives. I came up with faithful, respectful, obedient, trusting of God, wise, courageous. But I think the very best word that describes their conduct is meek. Do you know this biblical concept? It means a resolute strength that is submitted to God and his purposes. This is not a synonym for weak. It is not being a pushover. But instead it is humbly strong and expectantly patient. Willing to lay down that instinct to defend ourselves because we are entrusting ourselves to God. Daniel and Esther were both so committed to the Lord that they were willing to lay down their lives. They literally threw themselves onto the sovereignty of God and God used them for his purposes. Each one of them was only a piece in a much bigger story. For Esther, she risked her life to save her people, God's people, from death. But her life is a parable of a greater salvation to come. And through Daniel, God brought a pagan king to his knees. And the knowledge of the Lord spread to a region that previously had not acknowledged him. We can learn a lot from these Old Testament characters, but ultimately, we should always be asking, how does this person bear God's image well? How do they point us to Christ? All the things we can observe of Daniel and Esther in exile were displayed perfectly in the life of Jesus Christ. And his conduct was anchored in meekness. So what does meekness look like for you and I? Peter speaks very pointedly to this in 1 Peter 2. The context of this book is that Peter's writing to believers who found themselves in exile. They were dispersed because of persecution in the early church. And he had just got done calling them to be holy, to submit to authority, to honor the emperor, to endure unjust suffering, does any of that sound applicable? And then we see him tie those exhortations to Christ. So in verses 21 and to 23 of that chapter, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. So what's our response? It's that we image Christ. We image Christ in meekness. He perfectly portrayed 
that combination of submission and participation, seeking the good of the city, while still remaining true to his primary allegiance. He did the kingdom work that God set out before him, obeying even to the point of death. The exile of the Son of God that we call the incarnation had purposes way beyond what any of them understood at the time. And even though Israel's exile was a consequence, we can see God's purposes in and through it. When they come back, idolatry is no longer the plaguing sin of the people. They are refined by this experience. God has every intention of redeeming and restoring his kingdom through that remnant preserved. And these same truths apply to our current season of exile. What if the reality of our eternal home actually shaped our days? Do you believe the story? Instead of living for all that's temporary, we'd be a lot more concerned about the things that last. Hebrews 11, the whole of faith, says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So let's follow in the footsteps of the saints who have gone before us, faithfully pressing on towards that goal for which Christ has called, God has called us heavenwards in Christ Jesus. There's a much bigger story being written, even in this era of the church, than we can understand or see right now. So when pain and tragedy and discouragement are screaming a different story at us, we have to remember this one true story. The character of God remains unchanging. And if there's anything that we have seen from the duration of Israel's history, it's that God has proven himself. Has he not? So in the chaos of our day, when it seems like this is the end, we recall the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He has proven himself. He doesn't change like the shifting shadows. His purposes will go forward. His promises will be fulfilled. And so we wait here, entrusting ourselves to the one who judges justly, humbly strong, expectantly patient, until he returns to destroy Babylon forever, and to take his rightful place as the king of kings. Amen? Amen. I have asked Amy to come up and close us with a song. I could think of no better way to finish out the Old Testament. So she's going to come and sing a song that you know, and you can feel free to just listen, or you may sing along. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. 
that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel has come to thee, O Israel. O come thou rod of Jesse free, thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory o'er the grave. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel has come to thee, O Israel. O come thou day spring come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight rejoice rejoice emmanuel has come to thee o Come, desire of nations, bind all peoples in one heart and mind. Bid envy, strife, and quarrel cease. Fill the whole world with heaven's peace. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel has come to thee, O Israel. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so humbled by your faithfulness. And again, we're faced with the tragedy of our own sin. Thank you for persevering with us. Thank you for persevering with your people. Thank you for the mercy of exile that purges the sin from us. Father, just as the Israelites sat and waited for the Messiah, so we here now sit and wait in your second advent. And God, we long for the day when you will come and establish your kingdom in fullness but we're not there yet. And so God, may this promise of eternity with you infuse these days with hope. Father, would you work in our hearts that we would have a spirit of meekness like your son. That you 
would work in us and through us in the restoration project of your kingdom even now. We love you and we submit ourselves again to you. In Jesus' name, amen.